Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. I'm Richard Walensky. This is KPFA's Bay Area Theater podcast, featuring stage reviews, along with extended versions of interviews heard on Arts Waves on Cover to Cover. My guest is playwright Sarah Rule, whose latest work, Becky Nurse of Salem, is having its world premiere at Berkeley Rep. Sarah Rule's plays, The Clean House and In the Next Room, The Vibrator Play, have both been finalists for the Pulitzer Prize, and In the Next Room was also nominated for a Tony for Best Play. In 2008, she received the Helen Hayes Award for Dead Man's Cell Phone and has written the screenplay for a new film about Gloria Steinem, The Glorias, directed by Julie Taymor. Sarah Rule has also written a collection of essays published in 2015, and Letters from Max, a book of friendship, was published in 2018. Sarah Rule, this play, Becky, Nurse of Salem at Berkeley Rep, what was the inspiration? Because Rebecca Nurse, I looked it up, is actually a real person who was killed during the Salem witch trials. So the main character in the play, Becky Nurse, is a descendant of Rebecca Nurse, who was the oldest woman killed in the Salem witch trials. Rebecca Nurse was about 71, and she was known as a very pious woman, a little deaf in one ear. And you could say she was put to death because she didn't hear the questions, which is so alarming and tragic. So the impetus for the play was some amount of rage about the discourse around women over the last two or three years in America after the Trump campaign. I I mean, hearing crowds chant lock her up about Hillary Clinton was so disturbing to me, and I couldn't help but think of the witch hunts. And now, of course, Trump has used the word witch hunt maybe 600 times during his presidency. So I was thinking of that. And then I I happened to go to a production of The Crucible, which was a very good production. But it really got me thinking about the play in a new way. And I never before had really looked at the relationship between Abigail Williams, who's the young girl who accuses all of the women of being witches. And she does it partly out of revenge against John Proctor, who she's in love with. And Seeing the play this time, I thought, there's something fishy here. I don't think this is correct that Abigail Williams really was in love with John Proctor. And I did some research, and sure enough, Abigail was only 11 years old during the trials, and John Proctor was 60, and they never met. Many people think of The Crucible as as a historical document almost, think it has a lot of veracity, but really at the center of it is this complete confabulation. So at that point, you're going, okay, how do I take the crucible and also take the Trumpist years and put Mm -hmm. them together? Yeah, in a funny way. Yeah. How to synthesize those two impulses. And part of it was for a long time, I thought, well, I'll write my own version of the Salem Witch Trials, but it seemed so incredibly daunting and like I'd spend my whole life researching it. And I think too, I, I felt like Arthur Miller did it very well, very masterfully, you know, despite the fact that, in my opinion, there's this crazy fiction in the middle of it that's sort of damaging <laughs> in terms of what it says about young women's sexuality. 
but he did it brilliantly. And I thought, well, I, I'm not going to write another historical tragedy. I'm going to write a contemporary comedy. So Becky Nurse is a, a docent at a witch museum, and she's a kind of salty truth teller. And she goes to see a witch because her own life is really in disarray and everything gets worse. I was reading what Berkeley Rep said about it, that she goes to a witch spells happen and uh -huh. things kind of explode. <laughs> yes. I mean, I don't want to spoil things, but yeah, she visits a witch <laughs> to make her life better and her life, you know, starts falling apart. But, you know, because it's a comedy, it's not going to have a terribly bleak ending. And at that point, you just kind of go wild. Yeah. <laughs> During the process of writing, the setup you've got, and then you say, okay, the witch. And then at that point, we're not going to give anything away here. At that point, what goes on in your mind? What do you think? Well, where could I take it? What different directions are? Mm -hmm. I mean, the thing when I was writing this play and what, what usually happens or hopefully happens is that you start writing with a bunch of ideas or with one idea or a premise or an image, but then the character takes over and starts talking and you follow. So I might have had a lot of abstract notions writing the play, but as soon as Becky started talking, I just followed her. I've talked to a lot of novelists who talk about how kind of characters take over, and they don't really, but then they say, you know, use words like channeling to describe exactly what's going on. Is that sort of what it is with you? I do think that's what it is. I think it's you profoundly have to get out of the way. And when you're doing that, you also have in the back of your mind, okay, there are political or social issues I want to deal with or at least ask questions about. Mm -hmm. Do you kind of just trust that it will come out and if it doesn't come out, okay? Yes. Although I will say the rewriting process gives you an opportunity to sculpt a little bit. I mean, I think the first for me, the first draft is such a wild ride of, of following and, um, as you said, channeling. And then you kind of see what you have and start sculpting a little bit. Is that how it works for all of your plays, for, for In the Next Room, for example? Tends to be. I mean, similarly, In the Next Room, I had a lot of historical, social, cultural interests I was following in terms of the vibrator and 19th century technology and hysteria. But then ultimately, it's a story of a marriage between a woman and a man. And it's about intimacy. So, you know, I might not have known that when I started writing, but then the characters take over. So when you're talking about your plays afterward, and you're talking about the general themes, that sort of comes after the play where you kind of look back and go, this is what I want to do, or this is what I did? I think I start every play with some kind of question that the play somehow organizes itself around. But I do think you know more about your play when you're done writing than when you begin. I tend not to plan endings or outline because I hope that if I'm in the pursuit of discovery while I'm writing, that the audience will be in pursuit of discovery when watching. So I definitely know more after I've written it than before. Does that mean that there are dead ends where you put plays aside for a while? Sometimes. Sometimes I'll write one act and then take a little break and then start the second act. Sometimes you're going to have a contract beforehand and sometimes you won't. Right. 
What was the case here? I mean, I know you've worked a lot with Berkeley Rep mm-hmm. in the past. Well, this was a Berkeley Rep commission, uh, and I worked on it at ground floor here. And it took me a long time to write, but I'm really happy to be doing my sixth play here. It's incredible to have an artistic home like that. It's a wonderful thing to me to mark Joanna's transition by forging this new relationship with her, even though I have an older relationship with the with the theater. Uh, do you have a dramaturg on, on staff here working with you? Yeah, Madeline Oldham, who is quite wonderful. What exactly does a dramaturg do? Dramaturgs ask questions. They do research. They are there to bounce ideas off of. So Madeline was there in... Uh, Poughkeepsie, Joanna invited us to work on the play there when she was the outgoing artistic director. And so Madeline would be in the room in rehearsal, and I might go to Madeline and say, you know, I'm thinking of making this cut. What do you think? And she'd say, well, yeah. You know, so I think dramaturgs sometimes mediate between the writing process and the production elements, too. So you, the dramaturg has a great bird's eye view of what's going on, whereas the designers and the writer, you know, might be all up in one section of their business, and the dramaturg helps you kind of look at the different strands and how they're coming together. And this is before the director? Uh, Annie was there, too. In an interview you did in 2007 with Paula Vogel, you said that actors change your perception of the characters. Is that happening at Berkeley Rep at this point? I always think it's a beautiful, mysterious process of incarnation when the actor's body is added to the language of the play. It's so mysterious that it's even hard to talk about how an actor becomes a character, inhabits a character, adds their own self to the character, breathes life into a character. And on on a premiere, it's especially mysterious because it's the first time it's happened. And at this point, all you can do is select the actor you think might be the right one, and then they're going to take it in whatever direction they can or will. Yeah, I mean, certainly with the director kind of steering the ship. This is going to the Peets, which is a proscenium stage. You said in that same interview that comedy is hard and a thrust. Mm. Do you still feel that way? Well, there are some technical things in a thrust that make comedy hard. I mean, I remember doing the clean house on a at the Mitzi Newhouse, which is a thrust, or three quarters round. And what's tricky is that you're not all seeing the same thing at the same time. So audience might see different things at slightly different times. So I think it just requires a virtuosic director or a choreographer to make it work. So on a proscenium, the direction will, in a way, force the entire audience to look in one direction, yes. whereas on a three quarters... Mm-hmm. You can't do that. Yeah, or you can't do it every moment. Sarah Rule, clearly the past couple of years affects your writing. But how, I guess, how contemporary or how specific to the present time do you ever want to make your plays? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. I mean, I think plays are both of their historical cultural moment, but they also theoretically are repeatable in a new historical cultural moment. So I think um, you want to be specific, but you also want there to be enough give and abstraction for the play to be able to abide over time. How does that work? I mean, for you, how would that work in 
say, this play, or maybe it's not even part of this. I mean, there are references to being 2016 and 2017 in the play. So you have a little bit of a sense of the world politically hovering outside of the play. But I guess I would say it's hovering. It's not crushing the play. So I think the play is of the moment, but also could be done at a different time. You know, I keep thinking when I look at material being done in the past three years as opposed to before, which now seems, the Obama years seem almost like ancient history. I know, I know. But I keep thinking, okay, we'll be past this mm -hmm. in some way, shape, or form. Right. We will be past this, at which point some of the horror of the current time hopefully would disappear. Mm -hmm. Does that affect you as a writer, thinking in those terms? Definitely. And I think it's hard It's hard to have perspective. I think there's something about this particular administration that makes you feel mired in the in the present in a claustrophobic way, and that's partly the news cycle and its its present tenseness constantly obliterating the last moment. So I think it's hard to even have perspective and see that in a couple of years, hopefully it'll be different or in or in five years, things will be different. <laughs> and in in that sense, I guess, when you are working on something, I mean, I keep thinking about how last week is now ancient history, uh -huh. which it hasn't been before. Uh -huh. It almost seems as if we're living in not merely a different time frame, but a different time frame, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. I agree. And I think part of it is the digital age. I think the way we perceive time now that we check our, our phones for time and it's digital time and we don't wear watches. I mean, I, I have this thought that because watches generally have time going in a circle, you you feel more in circular ancient time. And when you're in digital time, time is always marching forward in very small increments. And I do think it's a totally different experience of time that we're having. Several years ago, you wrote Dead Man's Cell Phone. Mm -hmm. And I keep thinking, how did she know? Well, yeah, it's funny. I wrote that at the beginning of the cell phone cultural shift. And I remember thinking, wow, our culture really has not caught up with what this device is doing. And it would be interesting to revisit now that culture is really so changed. And that was back when it seemed rude to, you know, interrupt a conversation with a phone call. And now it's just life. I mean, there was a time when they didn't announce at the start of every play, shut right. your cell phones off. And I guess for actors, I know that Patti Lapone once interrupted a play famously. Yeah. But for actors, I mean, I'm going to plays a lot as a reviewer, and I'm still seeing people next to me using their cells. Obviously, you can't put it in your play, yeah. but it must affect you as a playwright. I think it affects people working on plays. I think, you know, it's very hard to be present right now. And I think actors, what they do is they mainline presence so that everyone can feel present. And But even in rehearsal rooms, you know, not in this rehearsal room, but, but in others I've been at, you know, there's a phalanx of people on their computers. People have their phones on the table sort of ready to check a text. So even 
a rehearsal room, which should be a sacred ground for presence, sometimes gets interrupted. And I think theater is one of the last places where we really are serious about turning off our cell phones. I mean, I guess, you know, music, um, music shows, theater, theoretically church, but there there aren't that many places. That's why I go to the Amtrak quiet car, because <laughs> I'm obsessed with being in a public space where people don't use their cell phones. It's impossible to go to a film these days. Right. And some of that is also because people are so used to being private that they're not used to communal spaces, mm-hmm. which I guess to me makes theater all the more important. Absolutely. Isn't that terrifying that people aren't aren't used to communal spaces anymore? What does that mean? <laughs> well, I, I think maybe 50 years from now, people will be able to look back and see something. I don't want to get too far uh-huh. off this topic, but you know, when they talk about the boomers and Gen Xs versus millennials, mm-hmm. you know, I'm thinking that millennials, there's a difference because they live in a completely different world that we grew up in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I have three kids, and I, I see that. So rural. Several years ago, I interviewed Jan Morris, the travel writer. And she said, everything is going to hell in a handbasket. And climate change, Trump, we, we both feel that way. As a playwright, knowing that that's always happening, mm-hmm. that we feel that way 20 years after Jan Morris felt that way, mm-hmm. as a playwright, Does that affect your work at all? Definitely. And I teach at Yale School of Drama, and I see different waves of themes coming through the students' writing. And there was one epic where I felt like all they were writing were dystopias. It was just one futuristic dystopia after the other. And actually, they're not writing dystopias now, which is interesting. But absolutely, the idea of cosmic dread or, you know, historical dread impacts people's work. In another interview, you said, one reason I love playwriting is that I I think it's a sneaky way to write in all the genres. And I had never thought of that, but it's true. I mean, you can put in fantasy, science fiction, anything, mystery Mm -hmm. in a play, and it's just a play. Yeah, and I, I think I was also thinking about you can have poetry, you can have song, you can have, you have story, you have dialogue, uh, you have, in a way, the essay form because you're making an argument sometimes. So you don't actually have to choose a genre. So you can just go on and know that it will never be marketed as this or that. You don't have to worry about that. Mm-hmm. I read that there's an opera version of Eurydice that's coming to LA Opera in February 2020. What involvement do you have in that? Well, I will be there. I will be there on opening night, and I've been working closely with the composer. I wrote the libretto and shrank the play and, you know, slightly restructured it here and there, occasionally versified or changed a word that was sort of unsingable for opera. But it's been a really seamless process. I really love doing it. Your words are in the recitative, in the songs. Mm -hmm. It's all your words then? Yep. Does that make you think about maybe I want to write a musical? Well, I am actually writing a musical, funnily enough. I'm working on an adaptation of this movie, Face in the Crowd. Uh, It was an Elia Kazan, Bud Schulberg movie, and it's quite prescient about where we are. It's about a populist, (laughs) populist demagogue. 
when Trump was elected, everyone I know was talking about that film because yeah. it suddenly came back. Lonesome Roads. Lonesome Roads. That's right. <laughs> Andy Griffith in a amazing performance mm -hmm. that is not recognized as such. It was truly astonishing what Ilya Kazan pulled out of him. Apparently he was drunk for some of it. I mean, because he has to get really down and dirty and Ilya Kazan had him drinking on set and staying up for hours. I mean, you can't do that in a play, I would hope. No, 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 no. <laughs> Certainly not for a musical because those singers have to be like athletes. You're also working on a memoir called Smile. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, about Bell's palsy. Mm -hmm. Um, just about that, or is it about your entire career too? It's not really about my entire career because it it it's really about nine years postpartum after I had twins. I had this facial paralysis that for many people goes away quite quickly, but for me it was a pretty slow, agonizing process that never totally resolved. So it's about that, but about smiling as a metaphor and what it means for a woman to not be able to smile in culture, what it means for an actor to have, you know, the performance of a smile versus an interior life. So it's, um, I guess you could call it a thematic memoir. Uh, it seems mostly gone now, though. Oh, that's nice. I mean, you can see my smile should like look like that. Yeah. Know? And it's kind of, you know, <laughs> but it, it can show an intention of smiling. Does it change day to day or is it pretty much the same? I feel like it continues to get a little bit better. I've been doing physical therapy recently for it, and I think that helped it enormously. The neurologist I saw initially didn't didn't advise things like physical therapy. He, he wanted me to get like brain surgery, neurosurgery, which I didn't opt for. But I'm, I'm realizing that there are these more you know subtle, practical things you can do. Yeah, a friend of mine had it several years ago, went away yeah. after about a year. Yeah. Which is, I guess, pretty standard. It usually resolves within three weeks to six months. It takes that long for the nerve to grow back. But some people are just outliers and it doesn't, there's nerve damage or the, the nerves grow back to the wrong place. Well, well, in your case, I guess, on one level, that it didn't go away is terrible, obviously. On another level, what it gets you to do is think about the relationship of women smiling. Yeah. I mean, I think you have to <laughs> take it where you can get it, you know, <laughs> so glad to be able to, to think about it. And I think, funnily enough, even just from some of the the articles that were written about the book that, has, you know, I, I still have half of it to write, but I've already gotten so many beautiful letters from people who have had Bell's palsy or their mother had Bell's palsy and never fully understanding what it was internally. So, you know, if it helps other people, then that would make me happy. Uh, I also understand you've written the screenplay for a bio of Gloria Steinem. You know, I wrote a draft and Julie Taymor, uh, who's directing it, also worked on the screenplay and she just shot it. And I'm not, I'm not exactly sure where it's at in terms of editing or, or when it's coming out, but it was a joy, a total and complete joy to meet Gloria Steinem. Uh, the difference between working on an original play and working on someone else's work, because uh, IMDb also said you're working on the uh, adaptation of something called The New World. Mm -hmm. Is that easier for you, Sarah Rule? Is it easier to do adaptations? I think it's a different part of my brain. And what I like about it is it's like a little sorbet in between other projects where you know what the ending is. 
So you, you turn off a certain part of your brain, a certain wild, unpredictable part where you have no idea where you're going. And you say, okay, I know. So for example, I translated Chekhov's Three Sisters, which I did at the rep. You know the ending. <laughs> you're right. not worried. So it's more craft. It's more word choice. It's It's almost like, you know, if you combine knitting and Sudoku with writing, you know, like there's there's a little more craft to it than when you just write a play. How does poetry fit into your work? Well, I started as a poet and I still secretly scribble poems. And I think there's a lot of commonality between playwriting and poetry because they're both about the speaking voice. And I bizarrely, I'm having my first book of poetry come out after all these years. So it'll be out in February and it's called uh, 44 Poems for You. You grew up in um, Illinois. Your bio says you were a child actress. Is that right? Does it? Yeah. (laughs) so weird. No, I would not claim that. Um, You never know what's on Wikipedia. I, I took classes at this place called the Piven Theater Workshop and Joyce Piven was my teacher. But I would not have referred to myself as a child actress, no. <laughs> so from the beginning, you were involved in theater. Had you seen a lot of theater? I had seen a ton of theater because my mom is an actress. And so, you know, in, in the 70s or late 70s, she didn't have a sitter. She just dragged me to rehearsal. And, it, and she didn't think of herself as being revolutionary about bringing her child to, you know, her work or hobby. She just brought me. So I would see... She was um, teaching at a Catholic high school, Regina Dominican High School, and she would direct the student play, and I would just come and watch. And I think that was the best training for a playwright, just to see plays rehearsed and repeated. It was the best. And then eventually you wound up at Brown studying under Paula Vogel. What was your first play? When did you suddenly go, hey, I'm a playwright? I went, hey, I'm a playwright, when I saw this play of mine, Passion Play, the first act of it, get produced at Trinity Rep. And Paula, you know, she's she's my idol. She's a brilliant teacher. She's a friend. And she's sneaky. So she snuck this play of mine into the New Plays Festival. She knew I was, you know, a poet and, like, slightly retiring about having my work in public, like, slightly shy about it. So she said, let's just, just, just do a reading of your play. And then she said, actually, your play is going to be in the New Plays Festival. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I it was at Trinity Rep down the hill from Brown. And I got into a car accident with my mother on the way to the premiere. I somehow wasn't wearing a seatbelt. We got blindsided. I blacked out. And my mom said, oh, my God, should we go to the hospital and get an MRI? And I was, I was like, no way. Let's get to my play. And so I have this idea that maybe my life has actually been a dream since then <laughs> because it was such a defining moment. Like I blacked out. I went to the theater and seeing my play in three dimensions in front of the audience, I thought, okay, that's it. I'm, I'm going to be a playwright. Had you gone to rehearsals, things like that? Yeah. Yes. You knew sort of what it was like, but not was, with an audience. Not with an audience. I mean, the standing ovation helped, I will say. <laughs> if it had gone badly that night, I might have thought, oh. What a bad day. I bonked my head and my play was terrible. I'm going to go write some poetry. (laughs) You must have been working on other plays at the same time. No, I was, you know, I was young. I was one at a time. I didn't didn't consider this could be a career. I was a beginner, total beginner. 
Do you ever think about going back to the earlier plays and doing some rewrite? I think once a play is published, I like to kind of back off of it. I am having my signature season coming up in New York where they revisit plays. So maybe I'll be tempted in the rehearsal room to do some rewrites just because playwrights like to be useful <laughs> in the room. But I think once it's published, it's good to back off a little bit. Sarah Rule, now um, Becky Nurse of Salem is coming to Berkeley Rep. Uh, and you've got the opera coming up. Are there any other plays that are close to development and close to being finished at this point? Well, there's one. I, I wrote a book called Letters from Max. I co-wrote it with a former student of mine, Max Ritvo, who was a genius poet. And um, the McCarter Theater commissioned me to write an adaptation of that book for the stage. So I'm working on that play, too. One of the comments about it is that it involved your thought processes talked were about the boundary between life and death. Yeah. Well, Max, I met him when he was 20 and he had Ewing sarcoma, which was in remission when I met him. And then by the end of the semester, he had a recurrence. And uh, we started a dialogue that was, you know, about things like life and death and illness and what is the afterlife if anything, and the fear of death. And then Max died uh, when he was 24, I think. Anyway, he died the same the same age as Keats when he died. Um, anyway, he's an extraordinary human being and a, a really dear friend. You've been listening to an interview with playwright Sarah Rule, whose latest play, Becky Nurse of Salem, is having its world premiere at Berkeley Rep. For more information, you can go to berkeleyrep.org. A collection, 44 Poems for You, will be published in February 2020.